Hey, great. This is another uh, profound podcast uh, with your host, John Willis, and um, an old friend, an old friend, uh, sort of a pioneer in this DevOps thing that we've been trying to do for, it's more than 10, it's less than 15, and we don't need to debate when it started, but um, but um, Steve has just been just one of those people that I just enjoy, you know, prior to the COVID, you know, pandemic and after is just he's just one of those guys that when you sort of meet him after the conference and you're sitting around you just you just thoroughly enjoy the conversations that you have so i thought it'd be awesome to get you on the podcast and uh with that steve you want to introduce yourself yeah i mean first of all this uh i'm very very flattered to be here especially considering you know the guests that you've had on the show i feel extremely privileged to be counted among that crowd um uh we go we go back i think i think our first in-person conference uh was belgium like ghent at the five-year anniversary Um, oh yes the five-year anniversary i was was gonna say not a 10 because i didn't i was on at that one and i know we had a great time in toronto when you were sort of managing one of those but you're right that that was people don't talk about that one as much you know as people talk but yeah, no, that was, a, and it wasn't crazy, crazy crowded either too. Yeah. So. Yeah. But I love that. And that was kind of, I was a weirdo in that conference, um, but it was, it was comfortable because it was kind of an academic crowd. I mean, there was a bunch of us who were like DevOps nerds. And then we got there and we were like, let's talk about super nerdy DevOps stuff. And then there was a bunch of actual practitioners who showed up who were like, no, 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 wait a second, like, teach me about automation. Yeah. And, and we were talking, my talk at that, I don't know if you remember, my talk was a five-minute Ignite talk on how DevOps is just a metaphor and it doesn't really mean anything. And it's going to not mean, you know, so it's going to mean something I different I stole that from you thinks. unknowing over the last, uh, you know, like at least five or six years, because I've been using that metaphor, Dominic. Mean, you must have stuck it in my brain. And without well, I, said, I, called it, I called it a MacGuffin, which is even more nerdy. Totally, yeah, yeah. Than, you know, anyone would possibly imagine. But um, yeah, I've you know I've been a student of DevOps, um, but you know I was in the trenches quite a while ago, like before DevOps was a thing. So I come from uh, release engineering and release management from way, way, way back, and then got into infrastructure and. Uh, CTO role, and then started a company around value streams um, in 2018. So I've been deep in the value stream space, and that's probably where folks know me from now. Um, and and that's been kind of a revelation for me. That's the thing that kind of unlocked and made DevOps applicable again, because I sort of you know I got to the point with DevOps where it's like everyone thinks it's a different thing. Yeah. We're never going to go anywhere with this. It's people are stuck on automation and culture and they're on two sides of a, you know, a river and nobody's building a bridge. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think, yeah. you know, value streams for me was the bridge, uh, ironically. I, you know, I had a, a similar thing where, um, you know, at some point when you're so deep in the echo chamber that you start like, you know, let the new people sort of describe it. And then it, it, it starts to sprawl, right? Like that's just the nature of anything, you know, lean, agile, uh, DevOps. And then, um, you know, I got excited about DevSecOps, right? And it was the whole craziness about 
did we need to, you know, I don't care, right? Mm -hmm. Name and, uh, but to me, it was uh, a more effective, you know, like you said something that like hit on me, like at the end of the day, I've written code, I've written, you know, I don't know, brag, I've written mainframe assembler code, I've written uh, operators in Kubernetes. I mean, like, that's not what I do for a living. Like, I've done it all. But the one thing probably, you know, like at the end of the day is, I think I'm a student, mm. right? And as a student, you start, like, you just can't help but to try to find the things that sort of seem like, you know, they're sort of improving. And so with, even with DevSecOps, I got to the point where I thought DevSecOps was, it was too generic. You know, if I go up and talk about DevSecOps, you know, and people are like, what about, you know, you know, roles and, you know, what about sort of identity? What about, you know, and I started thinking, well, like, what do I really care about? It's about audit. And, you know, and then I focused on automated governance and stuff. So I could, you know, see that with value stream, you know, sort of driving you, um, the creative, you know, student side of yourself. Like you can't, I can't see you showing up at a DevOps conference saying, what is DevOps? You know, like, yeah, let somebody else do that. So that's cool. Um, I, so one of the things I, I tried, this is a podcast about Dr. Deming, but, you know, what I try to set the stage is you could know nothing about Dr. Deming and we could just have a conversation about the principles. You could be a student of Dr. Deming or you could have some general idea. And I think the the opening for that, what I try to do in most interviews is, what are your thoughts about, like, Dr. Deming, how is it, has it or how has it influenced you indirectly or directly? And how do you think it influences um, our industry indirectly or directly? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I would consider myself a poor student of Dr. Deming. Uh, but definitely a fan, you know, I, uh, we, we have a little bot inside of the flow collective, which is a tiny community that I, that I run actually a growing community. It's, it's quite large now actually, but it's, it's all about folks who are obsessed with this concept of flow across organizations, flow of work, the idea of like value being central part of that. And we are all big fans of Deming in that in that space. And we've got a little bot that sort of posts a quote from Deming every single day. And that drives so much positive conversation in the Flow Collective. Um, it actually posts in the random channel. And it's like the, the random channel is the least random channel in our entire Slack community. Oh, like we hilarious. just, we talk about systems thinking, we talk about value, we talk about delivery, we talk about... Uh, continuous improvement and learning and things like that. So I would say that the, you know, the most concrete piece that resonates with me consistently is the system of profound knowledge, right? I think that, you know, the, the 14 points is, is fantastic. It's, it's a, it's a recipe that I think we could do a much better job following uh, and applying. Um, but just the, you know, the concise, um, pieces of the system of profound knowledge is something that is easy to keep in your head. You know, it's easy to keep top of mind and things that can, that I can keep top of mind are things that I can apply and I can, you know, I can look through them as a lens and that's what I like to do, right? I like to have simple models and simple frameworks that I can use to just pick up the lens, look at the world and, you know, imagine what does that mean given this context, 
that I'm putting on, right? And so the system of profound knowledge, I think, just and this goes this goes into like Akoff and uh, you know a bunch of other folks who are systems thinkers, you know, Sengi and 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 all those other folks. We throw those around the flow collective as well all the time. But um, you know, I think the things that we grapple with too are are pieces of the profound knowledge, like variation, right? And that's that's very, I think, very current um, considering DevOps, but also you know all the supply chain. Mm-hmm. challenges that we're having right now you know you can look at the you can look at the world and look at things like variation and uh what does that mean given the current context and what we're currently struggling with how do you apply devops principles to an organization allow for the right amount of variation in the right places and drive it out of the wrong places um and we have this battle right it, especially in the value stream space of like um you know, we don't want to be like manufacturing uh, and software is completely different than manufacturing. And so that's this constant struggle yeah. to kind of find the right analogy for things like value streams and where we're going with with software development and uh, intersections with like design and design thinking and, mm. uh, you know, what's the right amount of planning and what should that look like and how do we foster creativity and innovation but still have standardization and security and things like that. So I love all that. I think that, you know, the fact that we have productive models for having those discussions is great, but a lot of those models are just arising, you know, like I, I don't hear a lot of conversation around manufacturing versus software. Those, those yeah. discussions start and stop. They don't yeah, tend you know- to continue. And and that's interesting. And you know, I, this isn't sort of the John Willis interviewing John Willis podcast, but I, I do want to say, I, like on the back burner for me is a, a, a blog I've been wanting to write for the longest time, which is in defense of variation. And and the the thing there, I think that when a lot of people say you can't map lean manufacturing to um, lean software, or sort of, you know. Um, manufacturing economy work versus knowledge economy. I think the missing link is something that, you know, that's described very well in Toyota supply chain, which is the four VLs of learning. And there's this weird, subtle difference between variety and variation. And I think a lot of times we conflate variety. You know, what, what four VL did very well is really describe the difference between variety and variety. And variation, um, and 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 variety is the thing that you need in ideation and knowledge economy. That's not what like the whole sort of chain of thought from Schuert to Deming to is really variation. Mm. So I think people think when you talk about variation is you can't have variation in in ideate or knowledge work, right? And and yeah, I think you can, but but what they sort of are thinking is that like, if you, if you manage variation then you're managing variety and, and I think you can separate the two. So you can have the both. You can have that. What you're talking about is the ability to be innovative, to try things without boundaries, right. but there's a, yeah. there's a scripted process of where, you know, that you should probably track the relationship of causes. Anyway. Yeah, I agree. You know, and I think that, um, when we when we say that software is not like manufacturing or tech and knowledge work isn't like manufacturing, 
it's dangerous to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. There's, there's nothing we can learn. I think that really set us back. It's the reason why we went so far down Project Road with Agile and DevOps being a you know a, an answer to Agile instead mm-hmm. of being an evolution of Lean. Right. You know, yeah. we had a good model all along, and uh, you know, I think that we have a process whether we acknowledge it or not, right? There's a process for everything. Whether we're discovering it as we go and we're just kind of putting one foot in front of the other, uh, or, you know, we have something rigorous and consistent. I think the magic of productive software engineering and product development is creating a process that fosters and enables creativity, right? It's, 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 It's maximizing the amount of time that you can spend and the systems for being creative. Like we know that brainstorming is not a great exercise, right? Just coming up with things is not a great way to generate ideas. We know that systematically identifying, okay, well, here's a person with a problem and you know we can come up with ideas of how to solve the problem is far more productive. That's a process. That's not just, mm-hmm. you know, let's throw things at the okay. wall okay. or just get into a, a room and sit until so, you know someone stands up with a uh, a realization or some kind of magical insight. So I think maximizing our use of process in in creative ways and productive ways puts us way ahead of of saying that. We shouldn't have process because that's inhibit that's inhibiting creativity or driving yeah. creativity exactly. out. Yeah. That's a good point. You know, and it's just to sort of rotate on the 4VL one more time is if you read the definitions of variety versus um, variation, or they, they call it a different word for variation, but the variety actually has an economic uh, construct to it, to like what you're saying is you, you have to have a reasonableness of the economic balance of that sort of ideation or whatever it is. Right. You know, I mean, mm. a big part of Toyota was not the line. It was designing cars. Right. Um, that's an ideation. That's knowledge work. Right. Um, mm. But um, and variation is really more of a statistical um, you know, probability model. Mm-hmm. What are the likeliness of these things happening? What is the likeliness of these causes? And what's the likeliness of something going haywire that right now is good. You know, that's the common cause versus right. special cause. Right. So yeah, I think what you're what you're saying is that it isn't just brainstorming. You can't just say, okay, well, we can't have you know the opposite of variation checking is just do whatever you want whenever you want. Mm-hmm. That's not productive. There has to be sort of at least an economical construct. Right. And we know that we know that a time box is productive. We know that, you know, there are enabling constraints, right? Structure can be very supportive of creativity. Uh, it, it just has to be leveraged correctly. And I think you just need the right model to, to think about it. Um, but, you know, I think we're not served by saying that we should have unlimited creative time and, you know, things should just go where they're going to go. But, you know, certainly once we've sort of established a working practice, um, then what you want to do is make sure that that's consistently executed because you want to make sure that that's not slowly drifting off the road, right? right. And and I think that there's a lot of that as well. There's a lot of opportunity to say that this is a working practice. We're getting good results from this. We want to make sure that 
we can take the folks who are doing that right now, promote them to other positions, move them around the company. They can do whatever they want. And this thing isn't just going to fall off the road. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, variation is a big, that is the a core big aspect of, the, of that. Yeah. That's the core of the system we're found now is the one of the four lenses, which is exactly what you're saying is let's get rid of stuff that's basically out of process that are basically anomalous. Like, let's not worry, but they're black swans. Like, we're not going to put a lot of process in place to deal with this. Or we know directly that, you know, Bill quit, you know, and right. we had a gap, you know, like, yes, everything went haywire for about a week. Um, those are so easy. The real question is now that we, eliminated those let's look at the things that are in process and then there's real cool statistical tools that can tell you trends that look like they're going to go out of process yeah mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's that cool yeah i mean i i'm a big fan of system profound knowledge i wish more people took the time to understand it you know i've had some people who've been listening to blog and like oh my god i read about this system profound knowledge stuff how come i've never heard of it you know so yeah it's I really do believe there's just so much good stuff in there, goodness. So that's cool. Um, so you've been, um, so I, I was telling you earlier that, um, you know, I I, um, I remember it was a really long time ago um, in, in the DevOps spectrum, right? So really long time ago it was, it was like 42 years ago for me, but um, <laughs> But but like if we say that this DevOps thing is 15 years old, and I'm not going to argue whether it's 10 or it's 15, or but um, I remember Damon. Um, it had to be like 2013 or something like that, where um, he had saw um, an article by somebody from ThoughtWorks that that was talking about value stream mapping, and um, and he had gotten a copy for me and him. Uh, Mike Rother's learning to see SEE. Mm. And, you know, in, in he gave it to me. I'm like, why are you giving me this book about like act time and manufacturing? And he's like, you know, like Damon does brilliant Damon Edwards, for those you don't know. Um, mm. you know, he does this brilliant thing, like tell you, um, John, let me explain why, you know. And then we went into it. I'm like, oh my God, yes, of course, you know, and then and then, um, you know, so I did a couple of value stream mapping engagements with some clients and like it was, you know, it was incredible. Right. And even to this day, when I have the opportunity, I, you know, I, I, I'm less prescriptive about the value stream mapping perimeters and mm -hmm. more about like unearthing truth in the flow. Right. Um, yeah. But when I saw like, you know, a, a, a couple of people I know and respect, including yourself, start talking about value stream, value stream mapping, my first instinct, like, don't we already know this? And then I had to sort of refresh my memory of, or, or sort of put myself in the perspective is, yeah, of course, you know it, John. Mm -hmm. But does everybody else know how important this is? And the answer probably is I'll stop there and let you sort of talk about your work there. But I think that, you know, I backed into value stream mapping uh, after realizing that it's what I was actually doing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. many different times in my, in my career, like I, I would actually, it was kind of a natural instinct. Wait a second. You know, we have this big problem. We're not going to meet the goals or the targets that we've set. A lot of the times it was, okay, we have a giant backlog and the, our path to getting anything out is way too long. 
right? So you just, you can quickly just run the numbers and be like, okay, this just isn't going to work. And that can be, okay, we have like 500 new new clients and they all have to go through onboarding and the onboarding takes six weeks. So that doesn't work, right? I mean, you run into these situations where you're just like, okay, well, this times this means that we're just running into infinity. And that's not, uh, that's not a plan. Um, so the need to sort of work backwards from, okay, well, we need to cut this way down uh, in order to churn through this backlog. And then you're also, you know, you're doing the work of like throwing away half the backlog or ideally all of it, but just the need to kind of process more work and get, get it out into the world faster caused me to kind of step away for a moment and say, okay, well, what does this look like right now? What are we doing? Is there anything that we can do in parallel? Is there anything that we can throw away? Who's doing what? All these kind of foundational questions. And what always was the answer was like, well, yeah, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know any of those things. Mm -hmm. uh, those th That information is not available. It's not in anyone's head or it's in eight different people's heads in different fragments. And we've never put it together before. So uh, coming out of a lot of frustrations in my last role as CTO, where I mapped value streams, I did it in spreadsheets, I did it in Google Docs, I did it in like uh, un untold, unacceptable formats, not knowing how to map a value stream, and then realizing, okay, well, there's, there is, there's quite a body of knowledge here, but I didn't want to learn the body of knowledge. You know, I looked at it and I looked at, okay, well, I don't have little factories. I don't have trucks. I don't have this, these glasses icon. I always forget what that means. I don't know what any of this terminology means. And I've been getting good results with my ignorance, right? I mean, I haven't needed to know these things. And so I felt like there was an opportunity there. And I, I felt like the reason why people don't map value streams is that coming from manufacturing, the process is way too complicated and you could really throw away 80% of it. And the 20% that you had left would be giving you 80% of the value. Right. Um, and I think that that's, that's where we need to be focusing is, is again, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying this thing, this practice for manufacturing doesn't work for us because we don't have factories, we have trucks, we have all this stuff. And I don't have time to learn all this stuff before I can use this in my in my job to solve my problem. So my approach to value stream mapping was basically let's throw away everything but timing and the activities that we're performing. And then we'll layer on complication as it's valuable, right? Do we need to know the roles involved? Do we need to know how much value added time is present in the value stream? Maybe, maybe not. You know, do we need to know the tools that we're using? Do we need to know the artifacts that we're producing? All of that is like bonus. But I wouldn't say to anybody, you need to do X, Y, but you need to do all this stuff. You need to collect all this data. All this has to be precise. So I think what I was aiming to do with my approach to value stream mapping was saying, everybody knows we have to do this. Let's make it as simple as possible. Uh, let's make it so that everybody can do it. And then we'll start making it more sophisticated again, but tailored to software and product development in a modern age. 
but let's, you know, let's keep only what's valuable and layer on complexity. Like I'm a big fan of graduated complexity, not just saying you need to do this or else you're not doing it right. I hate that approach. I think that yeah. you, you just lose people when you, yeah, when no, you have I, that approach. It's just such a, it, it, it's just a, that mindset of like what we know we think is the right way. And like, it's just so non-scientific, right? Like, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, similar, it's interesting when you walk through this, I hadn't, I'm, I'm glad sort of, sort of getting your thoughts, you know, sort of firsthand, which is, you know, I, after I, I, uh, I left Docker, I sort of went out and tried to, let me try to do my own sort of single shingle, you know, consulting. And uh, in the first engagement, I was with bank and, you know, I was basically going to use the, the prescriptive, you know, I mean, you know, sort of Courtney case, so like, you know, they all had tried a reasonably prescriptive approach to value stream mapping, and it was effective. And and I'd done it like four or five years earlier, and it was effective. And the first bank I went into, I get all these people in a room, you know, first off, like I realized real quickly, the right to left. And I, I, I think probably that was original manufacturing and probably less emphasized in in knowledge, but like that was like stupid idea. Like, yeah, everybody goes, wait a minute, why am I, you know, like you're just trying to put this uh pattern in that works completely different in everybody's brain. And I was finding it added no value. And then the second was that I realized really quickly that every time I tried to sort of add a prescriptive comment about how we were doing value stream mapping, I would lose the conversation that was like the truth was flowing. And if I said, hey, wait a minute, do you mind putting that here? Mm-hmm. Um, it would, and it, I'd lose probably, you know, another 15 minutes to get back to that state we're in. And and so I, I very much like what you're talking about. I started thinking about, um, well, you know, actually for me, it, it, it evolved into what I call a qualitative approach, which is in like, before you even get out, let's just ask a bunch of dumb, you know, Gorat used yeah. to say, um, I'd go into a client and I'd say, give me, um, tell me the, you know, the top five things that your company's not doing that should be doing. Like, like I, before we even get into like the flow. So uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, I think you're spot on. I mean, I think that we, we fall prey with all these things to be, I feel like we have like the, the, the somebody telling you, you might be doing it wrong syndrome, <laughs> you know? Right. Right. So um, yeah, I think that, you know, the where I stop with you might be doing it wrong is in ignoring lean. Like, I honestly think that yeah. lean is such a powerful framework that it just supersedes DevOps and agile and almost everything that we've been doing. Um, it really, it really works well for almost anything that I throw it at. Provided you know it's you don't follow it prescriptively, you just you're just aware of the, the aspects of it and and you use it to kind of inform the way you approach things. But it says you know that and and that's how I kind of backed into the idea of outcome mapping because I realized that we weren't before we map the value stream. We need to define value. Like we need to be. You've got to ask those questions. What are the pains? What are the opportunities? What are the goals? What are the questions we have? What are we struggling with? And so uh, I, I kind of added, and that's what was kind of the the origin of the, the the real applicable form of flow engineering. It actually started as uh, value stream mapping plus capability mapping, which is like once we find 
a bottleneck or a constraint in the value stream, how do you make sure that you have the capabilities to address it? Because that was the next thing. It was like, okay, well, what do we do about this? You've, you've highlighted this giant gap. Um, what do we do about it? And so capability mapping was the, the answer to that, a super minimal way of looking at capabilities. And then, then I realized, okay, a lot of folks who try to do value stream mapping, they don't even know where to start, like what value stream, how do we draw the boundaries? Why are we even doing this? to the folks who haven't bought in initially, right? Because when you do value stream mapping, you've got to bring a bunch of people who are like, what? what is this? Like, why are we doing this? And so you've got to anchor it in something really real and tangible to them and make it clear that, okay, we're doing value stream mapping, not just for fun. We're doing it to solve this specific issue or address this opportunity. And so outcome mapping was kind of a, a minimal way to do this. The other piece that I think people trip over is that common advice is that like value stream mapping takes like three days to five days or whatever, whatever else. And I was like, if I try to get, you know, eight people plus a, you know, a high level stakeholder in a room and say, you know, it's only three days, yeah, like yeah, yeah. you're dead, you're dead before you even start. You're never going to get off the starting blocks with that. So the other goal was basically, how do I drive this down to like two, three hours right. and then iterate, right? So do the, do the least. And then yeah. once people are bought in, ask for more time. And I think that's another missing yeah, it's piece. A, it's such a necessary evil, but, you know, uh, and pragmatic, of course. Um, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, Damon in, you know, in, in Alex in their sort of uh, pre-run deck days, right. With, um, you know, they would do these large gigs and, and because they were really the two of them, they would basically turn people down just say, if you're not willing to do three days, then like, we're not going to do it. And they had luxury is they had a queue. And, you know, right. I was thinking myself again, in the sort of ideal state, you know, like, you know, that your organization is sort of hovering around a 70, 80% inefficiencies. Like, you know, that, and, mm -hmm. and you're like, you know, billions, you know, 50 billion, hundred billion, 300 billion, you know, market cap or, you know, and like, you're telling me, Three days for 30 day people is too expensive. You're like, right. come on, man. I but, know, it drives me nuts. But you're right, though, right? Like, I mean, sometimes you just have to deal with the reality. And I, I just, in the ideal state, it's just so unfortunate that, you know, and I think that that's sort of my last point that I want to sort of ask you about, which is, you know, it is the idea, you know, if we, if we tie it back to Deming, you, know, you talk about Senge and Akoff, right? Like system thinking. Like, I, I think, you know, I love that you said, to me, the sort of most important thing is just the profound knowledge, the four lenses. I mean, the more I think about things now is I think about system thinking as, you know, could I create an organization that has a generalized system thinking mindset that we're always, and I think that covers so much ground. And even in the state of, you know, imagine an executive who, didn't have a, a system thinking mindset would say, you see, I, I can't get 30 people to give you three days mm -hmm. as opposed to an executive who does have a system thinking mindset and say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Steve. Right. And, you get, and I guess the question, you said that in, um, and I'm an idiot because I think you have invited me to this, uh, the flow um, 
you know, the the Slack channel and all, and I'm going to immediately, now that you're telling me you're having a conversation about system thinking and Senge and Akko, and then like, <laughs> like, I will be there, like, if the innovation... We'll get everyone eventually. If the in, in, invitation still stands. Um, of course. The, um, you know, so you, you said that, like, a lot of those conversations, I mean, what are your thoughts about, and it's like a terrible question, but, like, in all the things you're doing, you know, how does systems thinking play? And not, you know, not that you would give me a platitude answer, but but not in a platitudable way. Like as you, I mean, to me, the simplest way to describe system thinking, which is a gross miscarriage, but um, is that you're just constantly breaking up the atomic pieces that you understand and trying to decouple, decouple, and in a never ending way that you always recognize whatever you know, you, you only know a piece of a bigger pie and, and that you're always... And so, like, in, in the world where you actually get 10 people or something to look at the flow, how do you, what is the collective think or what do you think about, mm. how do I constantly make sure that I'm, I'm like, like, hitting everybody over the head with, we need to make sure that we're always have this in the back of our mind. Did, did all that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's. I've got I've got lots to pull from there. I think that one thing I've got to do before we sign off is acknowledge the focus of my co-author Andrew Davis uh, because his his focus is all about uh, systems thinking, but from the knowledge of psychology angle, mm, you know, the mm, personal yeah. psychology aspect of this, and I think that's so important. And working with Andrew on writing this book has been such a learning experience for me because I've sort of backed into that as well. Uh, thinking about the idea that we have this vast array of knowledge distributed across so many individual uh, perspectives and perceptions of the system from inside, from outside, uh, and the experience of being inside the system and how that frames everything that we do. And really, you know, this collaborative mapping aspect of where I focus is this idea of like step out of your own perception, uh, share your perspective with a larger group of people, learn more about your, you know, the, the, the water that you're swimming in but also learn about, you know, what people see around them and then collectively build this understanding of where you are, where you want to go, and then what is between you and your destination. And that's really what it's all about. And so that individual psychology kind of bubbling up to a collective understanding of the system from a personal perspective uh, has really, really been valuable to me. So a less kind of mechanistic uh, approach, whereas I used to think of, you know, second order effects and feedback loops and, you know, complex systems being all of these almost moving parts, almost mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, a grandfather clock and abandoning that metaphor for something arising out of consciousness uh, which is much less comfortable, right? Especially to someone technical, but I think much more fulfilling because, you know, approaching it from that perspective means that we're now connecting 
our real life experiences to everything that we're doing in, in work, right? And there is no gap now between business technology and my personal existence walking the planet, which is like right. kind of an ex, like a wonderful thing to just be immersed in everything that I find meaningful and everything that's around delivering value all the time. I, I think, you know, it's funny because, uh, you know, I have sort of like these, uh, you know, we started off about where we met and I'm just remembering, and then you talked about your co-author being psychology and, you know, when you talk about like, I mean, like somebody might be listening, like these guys are out of mind, my personal life and my work, <laughs> but then like all the, what we've learned about burnout right? You know, and, and, and all the literature from Christina Maslach and, and, you know, how the work-life balance, right? Like that. And she even has very specific sort of organizational, you know, she does these psychometric surveys and, you know, and one of them is the MBI, which probably anybody who's ever listened to me knows probably you too. But then there's another one that's more expansive, which is sort of comparing the organizational uh, culture and behaviors to your behaviors. And is there a mismatch where the MBI is basically, mm-hmm. is basically um, am I just not, am I mismatching the world or my industry? Whereas there's the second one that she built, which is a very comparative, like your your organization might have these principles that really create conflict for you. Anyway, long story short, I'm pretty sure it was the five-year DevOps anniversary that I started giving a burnout presentation where you are. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if you remember this, but uh, one of the things I used to like to start in the beginning is David Foster Wallace's... Uh, what is water? I don't know if you've ever heard this or, you know, probably. Oh, I do. I do think I remember this. Yeah. I can so, picture you. I can so picture so you it's a, it's that. a beautiful, um, it's a commencement speech that he gives to some liberal arts college. And it's like, watch it once a year. Everybody should watch it once a year. Right. But it starts off with this. There, um, there are two young fish swimming in the water they don't i guess they don't swim they're just in the water and an older fish kind of passes them them by and and the older fish says you know how's the water today boys and then the older fish kind of goes past and the two young ones say what's water and and like that to what you're talking about like insistent thinking right like that was good example the young fish like didn't have you know again you can sort of draw all these sort of you know, explanations of what he's talking about, but he basically is talking about, you know, that sort of things that Kahanan talks about, the things that sort of Senge talks about is that, you know, we, we need to sort of break out or, or probably the best is Argus, right? Like the, the mm. ladders of influence, inference, like, like we need to force ourselves, whether it's psychological, whether it's technical, whether it's all of the above to break out, you know, make sure that we're constantly looking for ways. And that's, I guess, the genesis of my original question. Like, how are we ensuring when, you know, people follow you and say, oh, this is great stuff. I'm going to do this, A, B, C, D, E, that we're also making sure we're influencing them to always think that whatever you know right now is a smaller piece of something else you should know more about. Right. I think that's a great takeaway. And I think that you know, one of my very strong beliefs is meeting people where they are mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then, and then guiding them with, with, with simple, but provocative guidance, right? Things that are like, it's, it's easy for you to grasp this, but understand that this is incomplete, right? Uh, and, and you're, you're going to have to 
jump from this to the next thing, but I want to make it easy for you. And I want to make it easy for you to, to get from where you are to the next step. And then, you know, it's, you're never going to feel satisfied with that. You have a perfect model for anything, but it's all about, you know, making those steps easy, like a, a, a handrail, right. To, to support your, your ascension of the staircase of knowledge. And, and I think that's, that's the best we can do. Yeah. And, you know, and again, the, the thing I always go back to, even when we talk about lean, you know, I, I like talking to Dr. Spears, you know, he'll say stuff like, can we stop calling it lean? It was Toyota production systems, right? <laughs> like, you know, okay, mm-hmm. you're right. You're right. You know, and, 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 and then like, if you need any evidence of why this stuff works, you know, um, follow the trajectory from 1960 to 1990 of what Toyota did to the American car manufacturers. And it's, it's nothing short of like Godzilla like decimation. And that that's actually one of Steve's presentation is a DOS, right? Like, like it is like the numbers. I wrote a blog article about, let me show you the numbers. Right. And these principles that we're talking about were foundational at Toyota. Like, so, so they're right. I mean, at least they're right for now right? <laughs> in the sort of system. Well, they, they've been right for a long time, okay. right? That's and they continue, they continue to dominate. So I think that it's, uh, they've got a great track record with that. And, I, you know, one thing that I'm really interested in, I want to become a student of kind of the, the Tesla and Toyota paths lately, because I think that there's, there's very interesting things happening there. But I, I, you know, I haven't done the work to kind of connect that to whether or not they've got their own system that that is a next generation, or if they're borrowing a lot or borrowing anything. Uh, well, did you, you know. have you had a chance to? And again, not that I expect everybody to sort of listen to all my podcasts, like, but the one, the latest one I did was with this guy John Warnack, who basically worked with Demi at GM, and he tells this story where I ask him. You know, he goes to sort of how they like GM focused on Deming's ideas in motorsports and racing and came up with the, you know, I'll leave the rest to the listener. But I asked him about how does, you know, Tesla play in this? And he said um, some of the early DARPA challenges around autonomous vehicles, um, a lot of those scientists, and I haven't gone back, he, he lists the names of them, were early engineers at Tesla. And then I said, can you, would you be able to say that they inherited, you know, indirectly Deming principles and, and certainly Toyota, right? By, by proxy. And, and he said, yes, you know, so it does, did Deming do everything, you know, like, no, did Deming right. have this incredible sort of interesting influence on a lot of things, you know, um, you know, so um, yeah, I think there's an interesting story there. And then, uh, you know, I want to wind down here just for courtesy of the listener. <laughs> um, but um, you know, I'm one of my sort of challenges right now is I want to figure out, you know, that when you look at Amazon, one of the most influential people at Amazon was Jeff Wilkie. And Jeff Wilkie was the guy who sort of brought in the Golrat stuff where Bezos said every employee, and I don't have any facts here yet. So whatever I'm saying is factless, but he apparently told every uh, executive they needed to read the goal. He brought in a lot of the lean concepts and, you know, so that like even at Amazon, there was a, a heavy influence there. Now, uh, and I think in 50 years from now, 20 years from now, I think, um, you know, if we look at for the most successful organization right now over the last, say, 100 years, we would say, I'd have to say it was Toyota. 
I think maybe at some point of time in the future, there's a great possibility that that oxygen will be stolen by Amazon. But uh, I, I totally agree. And I would say that Amazon is the most value stream centric organization in the world today. And, yeah. and you know, I, I think they, they embody everything around lean and value streams a hundred percent to, to an almost extreme degree. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is an interesting, so, um, I love this, Steve. It was awesome. I knew it was going to be awesome. How do people, what's your book, your, um, your sort of um, different groups that you're working on? Like, and I, I'll, I'll try to put those in the show notes too. And uh, yeah, um, but- I'd love to invite everybody, everyone listening to this podcast. If you're listening to this podcast, you, you should be part of the flow collective. It's built for you. You know, if we are students of this exact area of study, uh, we have excellent discussions every week that are completely free form. So we have lean coffee format. So anyone can bring anything that they want to talk about. And uh, so that's number one, for sure. I, I would love to formally invite anybody to join. And we'll put the, a link to the show. Yeah, totally. Also, Andrew and I are, you know, we're working on the book. We're putting out a newsletter every two weeks. We'll put a link to the to the newsletter as well. And then... Just the idea of flow engineering. I've got an ebook that I can I can link folks to. It's totally free, but kind of takes folks through the ideas behind that. And it's essentially just an extremely lightweight, simple way to go from we don't really know what's going on right now or where we should focus, and we know exactly what's going to make a difference. So uh, that's that's the whole idea behind that. Rock and roll, my friend. It was awesome. Um... Cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was great.